What is a smart city? Our civilization has reached a point where we can no longer think bigger. We now have to think smarter. All around the world, there are transformative cities doing incredible things, and it's time to sit up and listen. It's time to make a difference for ourselves and for our planet. Welcome to Smart City Diaries, the podcast where a boomer says things and then a millennial says things as well. <laughs> so for those of you who don't know, because we're still pretty early in this adventure, couldn't really blame you for not knowing, this was going to be a TV show. Still is going to be a TV show, but we've taken a little bit of a break that I would call not super consensual because COVID showed up. And we basically were all forced into our homes, unless you're unlucky enough to be considered an essential slash expendable worker. And in our homes, we decided, well, we can't really make the show that we wanted to make. So what can we do? We can do a podcast. So fast forward, easy peasy, no setbacks whatsoever. Here we are. My name is Anna Acosta. I am one of your hosts. I'm here with my mother and co-host, Debbie Acosta. Mom, what are we going to be talking about today? Well, it sounds like a dry subject, but it's one of the most interesting subjects that everyone should know about. And it's big data. And what's the difference between big data and small data? And what does it have to do with you? Stay tuned. We're going to find out. But meanwhile, I know you've been looking at a lot of good stuff going on in the world today. Uh, what, have you, what have you found that you'd like to share with us? So the first thing that I wanted to talk about this week that I thought was super interesting, there was a New York Times story that came out in just the past couple of weeks about a scientist named Katie Carrico. And she's this, this is not a name you should necessarily know. She's not famous. That's sort of the point of this news story. Basically, Katie is a scientist whose work, along with her, uh, her peer, Dr. Drew Weissman, their work was the basis for the COVID vaccine. So her work is with mRNA, which has been historically, despite the fact that it's making such a crucial difference in our lives right now, historically, apparently, this has not been a very in vogue thing in the scientific community, which is something you kind of can't know unless you're in the scientific community. Like, I had no idea that people focusing on mRNA were kind of, you know, not taken super seriously and kind of just pushed off to the side. And so basically this woman is 66 years old and the work that she has dedicated her entire life to, despite being told it was worthless and not worth doing, is now fundamentally, it's, it's giving us what I would call a glimmer of hope with this vaccine, obviously. But the point of this for me is this woman's story, she spent, she's 66 years old. This is the first time her work is being taken seriously and it's changing everything. She's never had her own lab. She has struggled with funding her entire life. And let me see. She, yeah, struggling to get grants, never had her own lab, and has never earned more than $60,000 as a salary. That is the, when you take all of that, I mean, you could chalk it up to bad luck, right? Which is usually the kind of story, this gets trotted out as being inspirational, generally, in our culture. As she, against all odds, changed the world and she's just this great person now because she's, she, was, she was never in it for the money, blah, 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 all of the crap they usually say. But to me, what I hear is how many Katie Carricos exist right now that are working on things or that could be working on things that are told are worth and they're told it's worthless or they're not financially supported enough to keep doing the work. 
humans, we don't know everything in terms of what is important. And so many of the decisions we make about who gets resources and what gets allocated where is just ego driven because someone decided mRNA wasn't valuable. And they could have been right, right? Like, that's the thing. It could have been that this went another way. But the point is, we don't know. And so I just want us to look harder at who it is that we exclude from the conversation and who it is we decide's work is worthless. Because the next person who doesn't get funded or the next person who's not paid a living wage might be the person who's going to cure the next global pandemic. So I just thought that was interesting. You know, that reminds me, that story is is interesting because it reminds me of the story of Hedy Lamar. This woman um, who was born uh, in, in in an Eastern European country, um, eventually married uh, a German general during World War II, was incredibly off-put by the work that her husband was doing, eventually emigrated to America, and along with another individual— a woman who's an actress. So she became a famous act- actress. Right. You'll you'll see her on screen. Beautiful, beautiful, she's beautiful, beautiful woman. She's a beautiful woman. She was also smarter in hell. She invented the first um, secure Wi-Fi, basically for our viewers. That's the basic way to boil it down. She invented and patented the first Wi-Fi. And this was she invented World War II because the Germans were continuing to pick up the messages and were able to bomb a lot of the early ships and and submarines. And so she said, well, wait a minute, here's this secure Wi-Fi. You scramble the numbers. They can't they can't see the messaging. But they just said, go away, little girl. This is a man's world. And they finally uh, is believe it was in the 1950s or 60s when her patent had run out. Um that they finally acknowledged it. So since then, she's been acknowledged by scientific societies, but she never, ever was acknowledged when, when, uh, when it would have impacted when her. When it would have impacted her. Right. right. And that's frequently something that, even with marginalized creators and inventors and breakthrough and people who have breakthroughs, even today, it is so co- freaking common for us to sit here and go basically as a people, well, we screwed you over then, but we're going to pretend now that simply acknowledging you is a gift and that that's that's enough. A sad way to end this story. Unfortunately, she was not able to accept her accolades in person because she had so destroyed her face through surgery, plastic surgery, trying to stay young and beautiful for her Because that's all she was valued for. Because that's all she was valued for. So a tragic story in the end, but a brilliant woman who contributed a lot to the world. So what else do you got going Next up, we're going to talk about Slack. In a truly but why turn of events in the last month, um, Slack, which for those of you who are lucky enough to not know, is a web-based messaging service that has historically been pretty much business, business to business. You use it internally, and you have internal company Slacks, things like that. And that's the role, that's the lane that Slack exists in. You know, and so what they decided to do for reasons that I have not found an explanation that makes sense to me as a consumer as to why they did this. But Slack decided they were going to open up the pit in a manner of speaking. And if you have someone's email address, basically it's no longer an internal messaging service. It's more like WhatsApp. If you have someone's email, anyone and anyone can Slack anybody. And the question here is why? 
Wait a minute. You're pulled into the Slack platform. Well, no, you have to accept. So you have to accept okay. the invitation. But the point okay. is, yeah, yeah, yeah. this is a service that I get. No one was asked. I do not believe anyone was asking for this. And to me, what this is emblematic is a lot of times social media companies are super guilty of this. Anyone who's on Twitter or Instagram know, or Facebook knows what that knows exactly what I'm talking about, where instead of being innovative, instead of coming up with their own lane or ensuring that they are the best at their lane, social media companies and tech companies, their business model right now seems to be just try to cannibalize what the competition is doing and finding some success at, doing a worse version and basically diversifying their platforms to the point that they're less usable because you can't, it's sort of like, you can't have a menu that's, that satisfies everybody, right? At a restaurant, unless you're, ca- unless you're a cheesecake factory, which honestly is just sort of a, I'm pretty sure it exists in another dimension. When you go inside the doors of a cheesecake factory, it's a, anyway, they don't, uh, the rules of normal physics don't apply there. Here, however, it's like if you try to please everybody, all you're going to do is end up pleasing nobody because the service that you're actually, the targeted service that you once had is going, I mean, if you spread out your efforts too much, you're going to lose focus there. So what basically what we have is all these companies are serving us up these half-baked imitations of each other. And my question is just why? I don't understand why, it either. It's, it doesn't I, go I, any deeper than that. I'm not looking at equity here. I'm, I'm looking at why. Why is this where your money and effort is going? And who does this make? It doesn't even make sense with capitalism. This is an innovation. So I don't know if this is a, a my age thing because I didn't grow up with tech, but I'm often so freaking frustrated with somebody inviting me to a new platform that I now have to get on and I have to give all my right. data to and I have to... When you, you already know, had 30 platforms to manage 30 as platforms and then now I have to figure this one out. And, 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 and again, I love the story of Slack because it started off as a simple conversation platform, right? A business conversation platform. You could store... I don't even know, know if you could store documents on it. I can't remember because I never really got into it. But at least it served a purpose. Uh, when are they going to add video? I mean, they're going to add video next, right? In which case, why should we use them? Why not just use Microsoft Teams, which has its own problems, but at least it's built into everything else I'm using. It's not something else that's new. And I'm just, it's just one of my, well, you know how I feel about social media in general. I do. Oh, and I've burned out it. on it a lot over the past year. Something about the pandemic, because I'm a millennial, and we sort of were the first generation to go all in on social media just because we were there. We we were young at when it hit, which made us the earliest the earliest adopters. Um, and of course, Gen Z has grown up with it sort of always being an omnipresent part of their lives. So also very connected there. But no, I mean, we're I, I think the frustration is similar that you're describing, even though I think that's something that a lot of younger people share with the older with older really? people. I did not and, know well, that. And maybe it's just because maybe this is millennials and because we are getting older. I don't know. But. It's sort of a good example of that same concept is like how with all these different streaming services, they're accidentally reinventing cable. Like that's what is happening. Every, if every single freaking channel has its own paid streaming service, the market is going to saturate gents. Can't do that forever. 
we're not going to pay for all this. You're going to bring pirating back and you're also going to bring back cable. Like that's literally what. And I think social media companies are kind of doing this. Like we're reaching critical mass here. I don't know what that is going to mean, but I do think that there's a lot of people like me because I used to love I used to find Twitter and Instagram fun. I haven't updated my Instagram in months and I don't know if I ever plan on not. Well, I will eventually, I'm sure. But I, I and it's because I just don't care. I'm exhausted anymore. Yeah. It's because it's too much. And part of it is probably because I've been home for a year, which I was lucky enough to have a home to stay in for that whole year. But and half of what you do is you're just online. I remember at the beginning of the pandemic, my phone would, because, you know, iPhones tell you. And so when you get a notification that shows up, it's like, you spent 12 and a half hours on your phone yesterday. You're just kind of like, I did what now? And it's like, but on the other hand, what else am I going to do? But now I look, even now when I'm still using my phone more than I think most older people would consider healthy, it's probably down to about five hours a day, which when you consider how big that droppage is, and I wasn't shamed into using it less, I lost interest. So that's interesting. So it's interesting because it seems as if the companies, instead of trying to make their product the best streamlined and the best and something that I want to use because it's focused. They just want to sandbag the other guy. Their whole thing is just in everything add on Twitter introducing fleets was specifically coming after Instagram who only after Instagram stories, which only exist because they were trying to cannibalize Snapchat. It's like, it's this little thread of just lack of creativity and lack of ingenuity and lack of innovation. And it's like, aren't you people, aren't tech companies supposed to be the bastion of creativity and tech innovation? So how is it possible that you people are this quickly into your existence? Because in terms of industry, this is such a young industry. How are you already this boring? How are you already this you uncreative. said it was boring and it's uncreative. Boring. It is boring. And it has been done. On, I and agree. I, and I'm just like, come up with one idea. One idea. And this applies to anyone hearing it who it applies to. I mean, I don't know who you are. You know who you are. Come up with one idea that is unique. Or if the idea is not unique, focus on that idea and make it better than the other guys. Because y'all aren't doing that either. If they were cannibalizing each other and actually improving on the product, then I might say, well, in theory, this is capitalism working, which we'll talk about that later. But because competition is supposed to breed creativity, right? I'm not seeing it. And Slack, this was just Just why? be careful but before why? you add the video. That's all we're saying. Just be careful. Yeah. Okay. And so that is the news, folks. Next up, we have got our main topic this evening, which is, as Mom said earlier, big data. Mom, what on earth is big data? So there's an interesting parallel to this. Back in the early, from early 1900s, many cities or a few cities had this thing called a pneumatic tube system. And basically it was run by the post office and allowed mail to go through these pneumatic tubes, which forced air pressure to uh, businesses, probably not residents, but businesses throughout the city. And if you've never heard of these pneumatic tubes, because honestly, I hadn't either, go check out Wiki, go check out Google, go check out a website and find out about it because it's really interesting. And the whole system ended at about 1953. Data on the internet 
kind of works like that. So let's say I'm a listener out there and I decided, hey, I really want to listen to the Smart City Diaries podcast today. So you put a query in your search engine. You say, hey, smartcitydiaries.com. The computer sticks this into a virtual packet, basically. Um, and it's called a packet, a virtual envelope that's called a packet. And it's wrapped with specific information about that request. All right. So it leaves your computer. It goes down into the ground through the fiber or the copper, whatever you've got, until it gets to a main IP hub. And then that main IP hub says, hmm, I wonder where this thing is supposed to go. Oh, it looks like the main server is in San Francisco. All so right. the IP hub is like a post office? It's kind of like a post office. And the data said, is like mail. You're sending it yeah. to the main hub and then, okay. You're sending it out th through. So it I think I'm it, following. Yeah, so you're, you want permission to access that web page. The Smart City Diary services, oh, I recognize this person wants to get in. Let me send them the information and another packet to get back. Okay, great. And the information the is the website. It's the website. Now, okay. the trouble is this isn't just a little query, right? Just a little a little bit of data wrapped in an envelope. In an envelope. Right. No, now we've got images and we've got uh, words and we've got all sorts of things going on. So now in there's the little a little packet. There's all not, in the packet. Now all of a sudden there's not a little packet. There's a bunch of little packets. Ah. And their, their job is to all to get back to your computer all at the same time. But, but it doesn't really matter how the packets are divided up as long as they get there. So, for example, let's picture this. Let's, let's say you've got a bunch of tourists in New York City. All right. They're in Harlem. They want to get to the, the Eiffel Tower, or not, excuse me, Eiffel Tower, wrong country. They want well, to get to the Statue of Liberty before That would it also be a journey. In fairness to you, that would also be quite a journey. Right. <laughs> so let's say there's 5,000 of these tourists that want to get all the way to the Statue of Liberty. Well, there's no way that this freaking bus with 5,000 people is going to get through all this traffic, right? And right. get to the... So some people may decide to take a canoe. Some people may decide to, I don't know, take a helicopter. Some, but they're all going to try to get there at the, the same time. And the tourists are metaphor... The metaphor here, the tourists are the packets, right? For the data packets. Okay. Right. Just making so, sure I'm following. So the idea is, doesn't matter how you get there, what networks you go through, as long as all the data packets get there at the same time, time in a way that makes sense. Hmm. Now you can imagine the implications of this, right? For people who don't have robust networks. If right. you are living on the coast in either in the United States, you probably have pretty good access. But if you're living in the middle of the country in rural areas, in rural areas, and you don't have access to copper even or to let alone fiber, maybe not even Wi-Fi, but Wi-Fi is spotty. So you can see the data packets are uh, they're going to get interrupted because they encounter what we call latency. It means that the data can't lag? get. Is that lag? It's the swirly swirly. OK. Yeah. The swirly swirly circle of death that we I, often encounter. The data packets aren't hitting your computer fast enough. They're not all making sense at the same time. And that is why. And, and so the swirly swirly delays it so all the packets can get there at the same it. time. Just like the pneumatic tubes, the destinations are chosen because somebody invested in that system, right? So the pneumatic tubes, if you didn't have a tube, you weren't gonna be able to get your mail through this pneumatic tube system. If you don't have a computer, if you don't have access 
to the internet, a fast access to the internet so that you're able to upload or download videos um, or be able to access some of the interactive websites that are beginning to pop up around education or even trying to attend your college or your kindergarten class with Zoom. What happens if you don't have access to that, if you don't have access to the hardware that gives you access to the data that you need? This is where equity comes into the picture. There are places, there are places, geographical places that lack access to the internet, right? Because if you're living in rural America, um, local internet providers don't see an economical way of being able to connect your house to the internet in a way that makes them money, to be perfectly frank. They're not about um, equitable access to the internet. So, and it's not just the rural areas, but it's also in, in our inner cities um, where internet providers don't see being able to make a profit. They also will refuse to uh, pull fast broadband into communities. So this is the dilemma that cities now have. It's if, if we know where we want to go and we know that we want to provide equitable access to our citizens, is it okay for the internet providers to say to us, well, we're just not going to provide that because we can't make money out of, it, out of it? Is it okay for them to do that and just stops everything and attracts? Or do cities have a responsibility? Again, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, do they have the responsibility to the people living in their community to be able to, to give them access to the internet, which is now no longer... Uh, something nice to have, but it is something that we absolutely have to have for living, working, and playing. Cities have a responsibility to make sure that their citizens have access to this data and to the internet. So that's why this is important. This is why we want you to understand how data works, how your data works, the fact that not only are we getting access to data, but we are giving our data. This isn't just about how you use data. It's about how data uses you. Joining us today, Carl Nielsen is an experienced data and technology leader who specializes in helping new startups go to market globally, something I'm really passionate about as well. Driven by innovative thinking, he takes pride in providing creative new ideas and solutions for his clients in the public sector. As managing director of Smart Cities and Global Partnerships at City Data AI, Carl's motivation is to share how data and technology can create innovative new ways to improve the quality of life in cities, a subject that Anna and I are very into, parks and neighborhoods throughout North America and Europe. He holds a degree from Hamden Sydney College and currently lives in Charleston, South Carolina, where he's an avid outdoor and travel enthusiast. In the early 2000s, you and I discovered an interesting niche, right, in the tech world, the need for tech interpreters. I'm not a tech person. I'm an English major. But I discovered that there was a need to interpret between the business world and the educational world in technology. And I discovered that in early 2000s, too. 
So these are people who bridge the gap, right, between the computer science geeks and the non-techie people using their hardware and software. So when did it dawn on you that this was a thing that you could actually capitalize on, that you could do, and this could actually be part of your life's purpose? It was probably kind of you know midway through the 2000s, I suppose, and I was probably working, uh, it was probably my second or th- it was probably my third uh, kind of startup tech company that I've been working for. The other two companies that, you know, I, I didn't even think about or plan to happen, but they actually went through acquisitions or, or mergers by, you know, a bigger company from an acquisition standpoint. And so it was then that I really kind of realized my ability and my knack to really, you know, understand tech from, you know, kind of a layman's term, but also the the need um, to be able to kind of dumb it down. So as a former chief innovation officer for the city of San Leandro, I was all about data. If you asked me, what's, what is a smart city, which I'm going to ask you later on what you think a smart city is, I would have said, well, it's about the collection of data that helps people make better decisions, make city leaders make better decisions. And it was really kind of as simple as that. Well, Can confirm. That's exactly how she used to describe it. I can confirm that. That's it, you know, without any nuance, without anything else. So um, you work for a data company and your website says it provides cities with data APIs and visualization apps that provide cities with, quote, fresh, accurate, anonymized and actionable insights about how people interact with the world. Okay, we need you to step into that tech interpreter role. So what we do with with that city data is we help uh, cities visualize the data. So we have a, a, a platform called City Dash. And within City Dash, we have, it's a geospatial platform and it allows our our clients, uh, which are mostly cities, uh, to view the the data as it comes in from a geospatial standpoint. So think of Google Maps. Think of you know you're trying to find a restaurant in your community, and you can go you know pinpoint precision down into a latitude, a Latin long uh, location of of a location, and learn something about that location. It's the same thing with us is that we help visualize the data. So if, say, for example, you know, a a citizen complains about debris on the side of the road in their neighborhood and they report that to the city, then this dashboard will help visualize that for the city. So if a lot of the citizens and the community members are complaining about debris or trash or anything in the road or potholes, which is very prominent, then it allows the cities to have a visualized map so that they can take action. So where does City Data get its um, data from? Yeah, so all, all our data actually does come from um, mobile devices, whether it's uh, cell phones, uh, tablets, anything uh, that you know is kind of in transit and, and moving. And the, the key thing about us is that we anonymize um, all the data that comes in. So we just want to know from your device standpoint, where it was, where it went, and where it's going. Um, we don't care about what, you know, gender, ethnicity, like any of that. It really, it really is just a random. So we basically ingest the data, we anonymize it to make sure that it's completely anonymized. And then we, we kind of use that to scale so that everything that we do is, is anonymized. They're just dots on our map. Carl? Your work now is data. 
What's data? What is data and why should people, why should residents living in cities, why should people be aware of what data is? I think my definition of, of data is really a digital footprint. Um, you know, from kind of going from a, a paper world where everything was written and copied and shared and folders and everything like that, but now data uh, with the internet and, and you know these massive data ecosystems that companies build, it's really a, a digital footprint. That means that um, I have a digital footprint. You have a digital footprint, and from what I'm hearing you say when you're you're talking about tracking or multiple devices having footprints, right? So if I have a laptop, I have my desktop, I have um, a, a, a tablet, I have a smartphone, each one of those have a digital footprint as well? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's just like a car. Like a car has a unique VIN number, right? And each car has a, a unique addressable ID that you know is, is used for identification or tax purposes or anything like that. Each device also has its unique device ID and kind of, you know, identifier on it as well. I'm trying to think right now in my head how many devices I have just personally as an individual, because, you know, there's the cell phone, there's the iPad, there's multiple computers, there's desktop, laptop, there's even my activity on Netflix or whatever on my Yeah, watches, TV. watches. Everything. So, yeah, and people have smart watches and all that. So it kind of leads to the question I believe mom was getting at, which is so... This data all exists. And most of us, I'd say it's fair to say, most of us don't think about that we're creating this data as a byproduct of our online existence. So where, what, where does that data go? Who does own it? What are the implications of basically this sort of, it's almost like people who are online are creating kind of this mirror image of themselves in this alternate digital universe. And we have no idea that we're doing it. We're just like accidentally creating this thing just by leaving all this data behind. Who owns that data? What? And I'm sure that's a really complicated question. I'm it, sure it's not absolutely. easy to answer. But. Yeah, yeah. yeah there's, there's so many consumer data pr protection, privacy acts, either globally, um, especially within California. I believe just a couple of weeks ago, Virginia um, also implemented their own kind of data uh, Privacy Act as well to to kind of put more of a streamlined um, approach on, on understanding it, but also also it's it's about educating uh, people. Um, you know, if 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 you think about it, and and I'm you know guilty as 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 well as you know if I if I want to try out a new mobile app on on my phone, um, you know I'll, I'll say hey this looks neat I want to try it out, and I'll click a link. And then it's going to give me terms and conditions and somewhere, you know, 30 pages long. Some might be a little bit shorter. And so unless you really want to read through the fine print, you just hit yes, because I want to see what this app does. But in there, all these companies have to have a data privacy policy. I also feel like that's never as simple as because I completely I, I know that what you are saying is true. But from the consumer standpoint, I also know that, I mean, you could educate yourself, you could read all of these terms and services contracts, which are intentionally, I mean, 
the lack of accessibility there is kind of the point. We know that. You have people like Facebook who have, on multiple occasions, sworn, we don't sell your data. We're not doing this. And then it turns out, oh, wait, but they were the entire time. And they just kind of go, oopsies. Uh, or it was a mistake. We had no idea that this was happening. So it sounds Which, to me mm. like this is a really complicated subject. And then this is why people should know, should understand more about what data is, right? right. And that's really answers the question. So this actually leads to the next subject that is perfect segue into the subject of uh, implicit or hidden bias, right, in, in software and, and even uh, in software development and data collection. And, and I'm just going to bring up a couple of very real cases. And this, this is the one that always continues to floor me. It was back in 2015, software engineer Jackie Alsine pointed out that the image recognition algorithms in Google Photos were classifying his black friends as gorillas, Google decided to fix the problem by blocking its image recognition algorithms from identifying gorillas altogether. So that's because how- that makes more sense than fixing the actual problem, which is that your AI is racist. Right. So, and again, so I'm just bringing up some examples. Katie In Katie Metz's just published book, Genius Makers, The Mavericks Who Brought AI to Google, Facebook, and the World, he points out that bias in data sets has already skewed decision-making in harmful ways, and Metz foreshadows the growing and potentially dangerous power of AI to fuel uh, to fool public perception. All we have to think about right now in terms of that is these platforms where famous heads, right, are being manipulated to sing songs, to do things. They're fooling the public. We don't know whether that was really Barack Obama oh, singing that fakes. song. The, the deep, deep fakes. fakes, yeah. The deep fakes. So we can imagine how that can go. And then bringing it even very, very, very uh Close to us. In December 2020, Google fired Timnit Gebru, one of the most high-profile black women in her field, and they had just hired her. She was co-lead of a group focused on ethical artificial intelligence. And after she notified management that her team was working on a paper about the ethical risks around Google's same language models, she was fired. So the question Interesting. then... Interesting. Yeah, so... Carl, I mean, it's obviously data companies have responsibilities. What responsibilities do companies like City Data have toward their client cities to ensure that the data does not contain implicit bias that could impact decision making? And of course, over the last year, we know that this has become incredibly important um, with the advent of Black Lives Matter, more recently with the uh, attacks on our Asian Americans. Um, we know that that implicit bias exists, right? We know it. So, of course, the people programming the software are going to, depending upon who you hire, are going to have this implicit bias in their programming. What responsibilities does, does, do companies like City Data have and what can you do? To be transparent and making sure that, you know, what we are doing, um, and I say we collectively as, you know, kind of technology and innovation gets better. And, and it really does serve people um, in, in a positive, healthy and good way. What is your definition of a smart city? What is a smart city? Got me at the end on that one. <laughs> I think, uh, well, the way city data looks at a smart city um, is combining 
technology, whether it's um, Internet of Things and sensors, uh, smart grids, uh, divide, you know, combining uh, technology, innovation, good ideas. But the forefront is people um, and bringing people's opinions and ideas um, you know, to the forefront where they're able to share them with the city. Um, and the city leaders are able to use that data, that technology and the innovation to create, um, you know, a community that, that is thriving and that, you know, is making it a better place to live, whether it's, you know, in decreasing pollution, um, cutting down on, you know, traffic time, um, just making it easier for the citizens to communicate, you know, issues they're having in the city. So for me, it's just a, it's a blend of technology innovation and citizens feedback. It's about yeah. people. It's yeah. about yeah. serving I like that. people, right? So that they can in fact do what our Consti- what our declaration of independence said we could do, which is to pursue life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness. So with that, thank you very much Carl for this interview. Uh, hopefully our listeners will understand a little bit more about data how it, how it uh, relates to them and that it does relate to them. And we're going to be talking so much more about this in the coming weeks. So thanks a lot, Carl. Thank Appreciate you. it. We'll see fun. you around the internet. So I don't know what your takeaway is, Miss Government Official Chief Innovation Officer already knows everything about everything, but... I can say that I did, my my little wheels did get, the hamster wheel in my brain did start turning it. a bit. Good. <laughs> Specifically when we were talking about, you know, you asked the question, what can be done? Like basically what does city data or any company that serves that role, which is basically kind of the middleman between governments and data. That's what I took away. Like they make the data usable, right? Yes, like correct. that's the idea. They give you access to it and, and they, they make, make it, usable. it usable. Right. And so uh, the thing that occurs to me that, and the re- this is not something that the company is necessary. This is something that on the government side could, I could see could be done. So the responsibility is on probably local governments, the same governments that are hiring these companies. So the concept that I'm basically trying to mirror that usually is only consumer facing is, or Actually, it functions the same way in employment agreements, but I basically am thinking of the idea of a morality clause, which, of course, is something that has historically been used to be punitive and discriminatory, frankly. But the concept of a morality clause in a legal contract is that there are certain things that if either party engages in, the contract becomes null and void, whether that means termination of employment, whether that means that you no longer work together. Basically, it says there are certain things that if you do, we're out. And so it seems to me that because basically, so the data companies are, I get why they're struggling. They're like, we aggregate the data. We, it's kind of out of our hands to a certain point, how it gets used on the other side of that. They make a point of saying it's anonymized, right? Yeah. What I'm hearing is that the government needs this service more than the service provider. Like, they don't have to justify their own existence because governments need access to data. They ha- you kind of have them between a rock and a hard place. So if these companies started putting oversight morality agreements 
which of course it would companies like City Data would have to decide that they wanted to put themselves out there to do this. They could basically hold governments accountable that way and private companies basically saying we have an independent committee over providing oversight to how this data practice is actually being used, whether you are adhering to your own terms and services. And if you don't, capitalism, baby, we're walking away and our business and our service goes with us. To me, that is a way that this problem could be solved. Of course, you have to prioritize people over profit to make that worth because that doesn't, it's not good for the bottom line. You're pulling out of a contract from ethical reasons not for financial ones. And this is why it is not natural in capitalism for companies to make moves like this. But I'm sorry, that kind of thing, and obviously this is something that I just came up with in the last half an hour. This is not fleshed out, but, and there are going to be pitfalls I'm not seeing. All I acknowledge all morals, of that. And who's right? And who's, who's right? I acknowledge all of that. But if we're talking specifically about data transparency, that is the ethical standard here. It's literally, are you doing what you are saying you're doing? Are you doing what you're telling your customers that you're doing? And also, is this behavior ethical in terms of privacy? Because if the idea is that we're all anonymous, that has to actually be true. And I don't mean to be defeatist, because I do think there's a way to fix this problem. But I'm just saying, I realize how complicated it is. I'm not coming on here pretending this is an easy fix. And again, the public-private partnerships, I, I see that third that third party oversight committee being a blend of public and private, right. right, with people who don't have any vested interest in the outcome. And the governments have, they appoint these kinds of third party committees all the time and yeah. they do it in their sleep. And it isn't unprecedented right now. If you think about this very unique moment in time that we are in, um, very recently, Georgia passed some uber um, repressive voter laws that intended clearly to repress, to build certain votes and to repress other votes. And many other states across the country are also pursuing under the Republican banner um, uh, additional voter, um, what do we call it? Voter suppression. Voter suppression. Thank you. Voter voter suppression uh, laws. And very recently, uh, corporations have have started to come out, very large corporations led by the black American corporate community saying, no, wait a minute, we actually have some standards in this country that even we in corporate America must adhere to. And the idea of one person, one vote is an ethical issue. It's a moral issue. It's it's a government issue. It's it's it is the primary issue for all of us right now. And interestingly enough, they see it as a business issue and why they have to see it as a business issue is because they have employees who vote or who are not allowed to vote. Right. They have customers who vote and who are not allowed to vote. So it's it's a very pragmatic. It's very pragmatic. And if we could get companies to understand, again, the business value of securing information and at the same time being transparent, right? So that's kind of hard. Transparent versus security of individual data. Absolutely, it can be worked out. Corporations are beginning to see that it's important for them to weigh in on things um, and ethical issues that in the past they have run screaming from the room from. I just have to say that you know that we have reached a strange time in humanity when we are actually looking to our corporate overlords to hold the government accountable. 
Like, I don't care what else is going on. If you get to that point, something along, something's weird. Something is really strange, isn't it? And we're also going to talk about this a lot more, that corporations don't have to have just one single bottom line. That in fact, modern corporations, entrepreneurs are now thinking about triple bottom line. And that means not just profit, but people and planet. So shareholders are able to hold their uh, executives accountable to all three bottom lines. That's not widespread yet, but it's coming. And we would love our viewers to know that's coming and in their own worlds, hold businesses and corporations accountable for that. Long ways to go, but that's ultimately what we'd like to do. And miles to go before we sleep. Yep. That about covers it for our data episode of Smart City Diaries. Thank you so much to anyone who is listening and or watching or some combination. You know what? Astral projecting. I'm not judging. If you're here, we appreciate you and thanks for that. Uh, don't forget to smash that subscribe if you haven't done it. But more importantly, check out our Patreon and our uh, blog because we are going to have for every episode, including this one, by definition, that was redundant. Sorry. Point is, we are going to have supplementary content on our blog for every single episode that we do. So if you were looking for any links, actionable items, fun things of that nature, just go ahead and check that out. SmartCityDiaries.com. Stay tuned for future podcasts because we're going to be talking about blockchain. We're going to be talking about smart buildings. We're going to be talking about smart lighting. We're going to be talking about how you can secure your data so that other people can't get at it. Unless, of course, you really want them to get at it. We can, we're going to talk about smart cars. Oh, my gosh. Can you imagine being able to use data to drive cars? Oh, but you're not actually having your hands on the steering wheel? These are the kinds of awesome things that we're going to be talking about in the weeks to come. So stay tuned. See you next week. Thanks, Or guys. see you next two weeks. Oh, my God. We'll, we'll see, see you next time. We'll see you next time. <laughs>